Well, good morning, Wellspring. Um, what a privilege it is to join you in worship this morning. Uh, wherever you're joining us today, we're just so glad that you're here today. Um, I just want to start off by thanking everyone who was uh, a part of our Christmas Eve service, whether you were here uh, at church or whether you joined us online. It was such a blessed time to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the year is coming to an end very quickly. I just have two things to highlight for us this morning before we head into the message. First of all, this coming Thursday night, December 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. is our, uh, our Together Worship Night. And although this is hosted by our Next Gen Ministries, it's actually open to the entire church family. And so we're really excited and looking forward to that time together. We will be following our standard COVID protocols. So we just encourage you to connect with this. What a great way to kind of usher in a new year together as we worship Jesus. And so that's coming up on Thursday. Finally, um, our uh, year end is uh, coming up. So our, our giving last chance to give online before the end of the year, Friday, December 31st. You can drop a check off at the office or you can uh, do your givings online as well. And I just want to thank everybody for this entire year. Your financial uh, contributions, your gifts, your worship through worship, uh, your worship through giving financially has allowed us to continue to minister to our community in so many ways. And so we want to thank you for that. Well, I trust you and your family had a great Christmas yesterday. Um, Boxing Day is kind of an interesting day. It's a day typically where you kind of sit around in your pajamas. Maybe you're doing that right now. Um, it's a day where you get to eat leftover turkey. You get to eat and snack on leftover chocolate and treats. Hopefully you still have some of those. And you just get to enjoy all the gifts that you were given. And uh, doing that as a family together. Now, my mom is actually first-generation Dutch-Canadian. And so I grew up, our family celebrated Sinterklaas, which is on the 5th of December, or we did it close to that date. And I want to say, being Dutch has a few advantages. First of all, uh, growing up, not only did I get my gifts about 20 days before the rest of my school friends, but now with my extended family— it kind of eliminates the need to negotiate which side of the family we celebrate with on Christmas Day. And so that's also a benefit, and it's great. And so we just want to, you know, wherever you celebrated, whatever that looked like for you yesterday, I pray that you had a great time celebrating Jesus with your family. And we're just so glad that you were able to join us again this morning as we continue to do that as a church family. Now this morning, we are wrapping up a series that we've been looking at through the month of December. And Pastor Shane, he's led us through John chapter 1, and we've been looking at various truths about who Jesus is. We've looked at Jesus as the light who came in the flesh to die as the lamb for the sins of the world. And there's this progression in John's gospel that keeps addressing the same question of identity, specifically asking the question, who is Jesus? And many people are seeking an answer to this essential question. I mean, even the religious leaders who are often known to have all the answers are asking the same question themselves. And they're quite anxious for an answer. So they even ask the desert preacher, John the Baptist, if he is the one, the Messiah, who they've been looking for. Now, the, John the Baptist, he actually quotes the words of Isaiah, saying that he is not the Christ, but simply a prophet who points to the Christ. 
Now, if you look at uh, the first chapter of John, it's interesting that John never actually answers the question that the religious leaders ask him. And instead of answering the question, who are you? He answers a question that they aren't asking. He answers the question, why? Why is he out in the desert preaching and baptizing so many people? I mean, John the Baptist's life and ministry was never about who he was, but it was about pointing people to who the Messiah was, Jesus Christ. And John's gospel is interested in one central thing, answering the question of who Jesus is. And we know this is the fact because in the gospel of John, at the very end, John chapter 20, verses 31, 30 to 31, it tells us its purpose. Listen to this. It says, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John's gospel is concerned with answering the question, who is Jesus. And it does this by illustrating this truth through seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for my sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the true vine. And so Jesus illustrates his qualities through these statements, but probably the most powerful statement that Jesus makes about his identity is in this one standalone I am statement in John chapter 8, verse 58. And the Pharisees are still seeking an answer to the question of who Jesus is. And so Jesus introduces himself with a name that they were very familiar with because it was the very name that God introduced himself to Moses during the burning bush episode in Exodus chapter 3. And it's during this divine introduction where God meets Moses, he turns his life around, sends him back to Egypt to redeem his people from Pharaoh. But before Moses goes back, he basically stops and he goes, well, hang on a second, God. I mean, he kind of wants to know who he's dealing with. And so he asks God the question. He essentially asks God, who are you? I mean, who should I tell the people that you are? And God responds, my name is I am. My name is I am. Now, Yahweh, the name Israel more commonly used to describe God, to talk about God, it actually comes out of the Hebrew word for I am. And God tells Moses that his name, I am, will be his name forever, from generation to generation. And so fast forward 1,500 years into the future, when this first century Jewish rabbi, he arrives on the scene whose birth whose knowledge and whose abilities are miraculous. And people want to know who he is. Now, this is the scene that we see unfold in John chapter 8, where Jesus answers the question of his identity once and for all. And in one phrase, Jesus connects his identity both with God himself, but also as the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that they had all been waiting for since 
Abraham. Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the blessing that Abraham looked forward to. I am the fulfillment of the entire law. I am the salvation that the prophets spoke about. I am God. And Jesus' statement couldn't have been any more clear. His statement essentially ended the debate. You could say it was a conversation killer, a mic drop moment. But when Jesus dropped the mic, the religious leaders picked up stones to kill him because he claimed to be God. So who is Jesus? Well, that's the question that we've been looking at this month. But it's a question that requires more than an answer. It's a question that demands a response. And returning to the first chapter of John, we're actually given an example of the response that is required of those who believe that Jesus is the light who came in the flesh to die as the lamb for the sins of the world. And so the day after John was asked by the religious leaders if he was the Messiah, the answer to their question, Jesus literally walks up to John and asked to be baptized. I mean, just imagine for a moment the crowd that was there that day. I mean, they were sure glad they came to service that day to be able to witness what they saw. And so John literally stops the service. He stops everything, and he points into the crowd, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I sometimes find it helpful to visualize the story. I mean, just think about the crowds that were gathered, the lineup of people waiting to be baptized, the poor person who likely was dropped in the water when John saw Jesus walking towards him to be baptized in that moment. I mean, just think about what's going on here. In this exact moment, John's very life and ministry was fulfilled. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a sense or a feeling that your life was fulfilled in a certain way, that you just did the very thing that God created you to do. And that joy was John's. That incredible sense of fulfillment was his that day. But that's not the end of the story. You see, John the Baptist may have introduced us to the Messiah, but it was an introduction that demanded a response. But what kind of response? See, once we understand who Jesus is, how are we supposed to respond to this Jesus? Well, let's take a look at how John the Baptist's disciples respond in John 1, verse 35 to 39. Let's read that. The next day, John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. And so they see Jesus, they understand who he was, and they follow him. Now, I often kind of smile at the response they give to Jesus' question. I mean, what do you want? Because think about it. The author of life itself asks you what you want, and their best response is, uh, where are you staying? It's kind of funny. And I don't know, maybe you have stood in the presence of someone great or someone with great authority, 
Uh, maybe it could have been a principal, a manager, a police officer, maybe even a judge. And in the presence of great authority, have you ever responded wrongly? You know, when I was at uh, Heritage Bible College in Cambridge, I signed up to go on a missions trip to New York City. It was an evangelism uh, trip down to New York City with uh, some friends of mine. And as we were heading down to the States, the driver, uh, Rick, he was starting to get very nervous as we approached the border. Now, the reason he was getting nervous was because Rick was not experienced in crossing the border. And the thought of having to speak to a border patrol officer started to cause him a great deal of stress. And, you know, all of us in the car, we tried to assure him, encourage him that it was a very simple thing. All he had to do was answer very honestly and to the point when he was asked questions. Well, that is exactly what Rick did, because when the Border Patrol officer asked the question, what is the purpose of your trip? Rick responded, we are on a mission. Now, that wasn't the response that the Border Patrol officer or any of us in the car were expecting. And so that resulted in Rick being asked to get out of the vehicle. A lot of other questions were asked, and our entire luggage was thoroughly examined. See, when we stand in the presence of someone great or someone with great authority, it requires more than just to simply acknowledge their presence. Just acknowledging their presence is never enough. We need to respond correctly. And when it comes to our faith and acknowledging the person of Jesus, the response we see demonstrated throughout the Gospels is the response of discipleship. Now, the term discipleship can actually bring up a lot of different thoughts. And for some people, when they hear the word discipleship, maybe you think about Christian leadership, like something that is reserved for pastors, missionaries, or church leaders. Others might think about people who study and know God's word. Maybe you kind of remember uh, taking a discipleship class where you learned the doctrines or beliefs of the Christian faith. And so part of the challenge to knowing how to respond to Jesus as a disciple is understanding the type of discipleship that he calls us to. And correctly defining discipleship, it's not just a challenge for us today, but it was also a challenge during the time of Jesus in the first century. Now, this challenge was because discipleship was not actually a new thing that Jesus introduced. In fact, the Hebrew understanding of discipleship, it borrowed from the Greek, and it generally viewed disciples as learners or students. And so by the time of Jesus, discipleship was so common that rabbis could have hundreds of students who studied their teachings. And discipleship was not only limited to rabbis, but also philosophers, scribes, Pharisees, and even revolutionary leaders had disciples as well. But although disciples and discipleship was common, Jesus does something new. He actually redefined discipleship. He redefined discipleship from a learner of a message to a follower of a master. From a learner of a message to a follower of a master. See, Jesus created a shift in discipleship that was no longer centered on an idea or a movement, but now it was centered on a person, and that was the person of Jesus himself. 
In fact, by the time the early church began, this shift in understanding discipleship, not as a learner, but as a follower of Jesus, became so common that the term disciple and Christian essentially became interchangeable. In fact, you see that throughout the book of Acts. In Acts eleven twenty six, it says it most clearly. It says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so to Jesus and the first followers, the term disciple, it described not the abnormal, but the normal Christian. And this is actually what we find in the first chapter of John, when the disciples of John the Baptist become the disciples of Jesus. You see, the desert preacher's disciples, they were not primarily learners because John was not primarily a teacher, but a prophet. And these first two disciples of Jesus, they respond in this simple yet beautiful way. I love this. They find Jesus, they follow Jesus, and they share Jesus with others. Finding, following, and sharing Jesus is at the heart of the kind of discipleship that Jesus invites us into. And so these two disciples, they leave John to follow Jesus and immediately begin to invite others to do the same. One of the two, Andrew, tells his brother, Simon Peter. The next day, Philip also joins and he goes and finds Nathaniel and invites him to do the same, to come and see Jesus. And I love the progression of the disciples here. I mean, this is incredible. At the earliest stage of their discipleship, their enthusiasm for finding Jesus is greater than their understanding of who he is or what the life that he's calling them into will look like. And there's a great implication here for us today that the kind of discipleship that Jesus invites people into, it actually creates space for people to belong before they believe. In fact, this is what we see in the Gospels. These early disciples, they didn't actually believe until after they witnessed the first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana, when he turns water into wine. We actually see this in Scripture. It says that after the miracle in John 2, 11, and it's after that that his disciples believed in him. And so throughout the Gospels, Jesus invites his disciples to place their trust in him. To move from simply being curious to being committed followers of him. Now this invitation to be committed followers of Jesus probably can be seen the most clearly in John chapter 6. Where at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's actually accumulated quite a crowd of disciples. And as you follow the story in John 6, we find that the crowd may have enjoyed the content of Jesus' teaching but they had no commitment to following these teachings or the one who taught them, Jesus himself. And Jesus, he preaches a very hard message. He invites this hungry crowd to feed on him because only through his body and his blood would they ever have their most important, their most eternal, their spiritual need met. But this is how the crowd responds to Jesus's invitation in John 6 verse 60. It says this, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Going to verse 64. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Down to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer followed him. You see, the crowd obviously had a different understanding of the discipleship that Jesus was inviting them into because they turned back no longer able to follow him. Now, this is one response to Jesus's invitation to discipleship. But then we see another response. We see the 12 who remain. And I think Peter's words here capture so beautifully the heart of discipleship when Peter declares, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, although like the crowd, Peter doesn't have full understanding of Jesus's teaching, but he does have understanding of the kind of discipleship that Jesus is inviting them into. It's a discipleship that is not centered on learning content, but it's actually about a transformed character. It's a discipleship that begins with faith in Jesus, but it results in a life of following Jesus. You know, author Bill Hall, he summarizes this so beautifully when he writes, When Jesus said, follow me, he defined faith. Faith goes much deeper than just believing that Jesus is the Christ. The proof of faith is following him. And so biblically, to be a Christian is not only to acknowledge who Jesus is or even just to believe in his message. To be a Christian is about following the master, Jesus himself. It means being a disciple whose faith in Jesus results in following Jesus in every area of our lives. You know, recently I shared a picture of a bookshelf with our senior high students, and I I asked them to kind of picture the bookshelf as sort of representing their entire lives, with all the different shelves representing the different categories that make up who they are. I had them think about their school and work and relationships you know, sports and activities and other interests that kind of make up all the different parts of who they are. And as I pictured that bookshelf, I then asked them the question, where do you see Jesus fitting within the bookshelf of your life? Like, what shelf does Jesus belong to? Is he somewhere near the top? Is he kind of somewhere in the middle? Is he at the bottom? Is he on the shelf at all? But there's a problem with this question, and I think it exposes the way that we often view discipleship. Because often we view discipleship as an optional second step category that is actually separate from salvation. See, unintentionally, the church has created a category of non-discipleship Christianity, that people can actually be Christians without making any effort to submit to and follow Christ. Author Greg Ogden, he actually calls this the elephant in the room, that there's this unspoken assumption that a person can be a Christian without being a disciple. You know, maybe part of the problem is that when we accepted Jesus, we came to view salvation as faith alone in facts alone, instead of faith alone in Christ alone alone. And yes, our faith is in the truth of the gospel, what Jesus did for us in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. But when Jesus called people to follow him, it involved committing their entire life 
to his entire life in all areas of their life. And so thinking about the bookshelf picture again, following Jesus means that his life, he doesn't actually fit on any one shelf of the bookshelf, but when we follow Jesus, his life becomes the entire bookshelf itself. Following Jesus means that Jesus becomes the framework that everything else in our life fits within. And so my life becomes his. My plans become his. My financial situation becomes his, including my fears, my failures, and my flaws. All of that becomes his. And it's so beautiful because he gets our life and we get his life, along with all the rights and responsibilities that come along with being a child of God. All of it for all of him. That is the truth of following Jesus. I'm going to call Alana back up. Now she's coming. I just want to kind of pose a question to us as we wrap up our time this morning. And the question that I think we need to wrestle with this morning is simply this. Am I a committed disciple of Jesus? Has my faith moved me from belief in a message to following a master, the person of Jesus? Has my discipleship been limited to one category? Or is my life becoming, or is my faith becoming a framework where Jesus actually interacts with every single part of my life? And I want to say, if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, sometimes what I like to call kicking the tires of Christianity, I want you to remember that Jesus didn't just call people who had all the answers. In fact, very rarely, Jesus called people, all people, to just simply come and see. Jesus created space for people to belong before they believed. And that same invitation is yours today. I want to encourage you to explore the person, the life, and the message of Jesus and respond to this incredible invitation to do life in and through him as a beloved child of God. You know, this month we've been examining the identity of Jesus as the light who came in the flesh to die as the lamb for the sins of the world. And as we've seen, this question of Jesus's identity, it requires more than an answer. It demands a response. And that response is discipleship. It's a discipleship that moves us from simply acknowledging that Jesus is God to trusting him as our savior and then to committing our life to following him as our master. And friends, discipleship is not reserved for the select few. It's not a second optional step for the extra committed Christian. Discipleship to Jesus and to the early church was viewed as synonymous with the entire Christian life. And so this invitation of finding Jesus, of following Jesus, and then sharing Jesus with others, friends, this was so central to the mission of Christ that this became the co-mission of the church. And so I want to encourage you and invite you to return to this mission of discipleship 
the same discipleship that Jesus was all about and not view it as simply one of the things the church does, but as the main thing. And as we sing this final song this morning, let this final song be your response. Let this final song be your declaration. And may these words become your words to God that you have decided to follow Jesus as his disciple.